This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight, we take a detour from our usual topics of UFOs, parapolitics, hidden archaeology, and the paranormal, to talk about government bureaucracy and what we need to do to become self-reliant and get this hydra of our backs and of our lives, and all just like Gandhi, peacefully. Do we even need governments? I'm not alluding to anarchy, but self-reliance. It seems that the larger the government becomes, the more oppressed the people are. Our special guest is Mark Stevens radio host and author of the book Adventures in Legal Land. The title of this show, Individual Sovereignty versus Government Enslavement, The Politics of Voluntary Servitude. Mark Stevens will be with us shortly. 
To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. Just go to our website, VeritasShow.com, click on the subscribe button, and receive instant access. Don't wait any longer. For only $7.95 per month, you can listen to all of our material, hundreds of hours in CD audio quality, and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase our 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material or even MMS. What is MMS? It's like an insurance policy. Go to the past shows and listen to Jim Humble's interview entitled Jim Humble versus the FDA. It's better to have it and not need it, to need it and not have it. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and also join me on Facebook. According to Mark Stevens, the system is a hoax, and indeed, all of government and politics is nothing but rule by violence. Government, by its very nature, will never be free of corruption. In fact, government must be corrupt. If you can't face this fact, you can't face reality. I will be discussed tonight. No politician, bureaucrat, or anyone who derives their power from the political system will ever discuss it. As it was then, so it is now. Government is all a state of mind. It's Alice in Wonderland and Neo in the Matrix. We're not in castles anymore, Toto. We never were. There is no state. Individual sovereignty versus government enslavement. The politics of voluntary servitude. Mark Stevens is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Catherine Austin Fitz, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Mark Stevens is the author of Adventures in Legal Land, a scathing expose on the true nature of government based on real courtroom experience 
Mark also hosts the No State Project, a weekly radio show dedicated to bringing about a voluntary society, heard on 10 AM and FM affiliates. Mark's website is markstevens.net. Mark, M-A-R-C, stevens.net. And the show is live every Saturday from 4 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mark Stevens knows how to make judges and bureaucrats squirm and worry with his powerful method of simple critical questioning that deals with factual reality instead of legal fictions and deception. And directly from your somewhere in Arizona, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Mark Stevens. Hello, Mark, and welcome. How are you? Well, good. Thank you. Very uh, appreciate you having me on as a guest. My pleasure. Are you in, in Phoenix, by the way? I am in Phoenix, and it is 114 degrees. Out. Well, it's uh, one degree lower in Tucson, so we're <laughs> we're in the same hot desert. Mark, give us some background of yourself. You're very brave. You remind me a little bit of Ralph Epperson. Do you know Ralph, by the way? I, uh, you catch me off guard. I don't recall. Oh no, I don't think I know. He's in Tucson, actually. He wrote uh, many books, including uh, The Hidden Hand and The New World Order. And he deals a lot with uh, how to be sovereign. But give us some background of yourself, uh, Mark. Well, I didn't actually come from any, I don't have any formal legal training. I don't, I don't come from that background. I uh, had tackled a labor issue back in Long Island, where I'm from. And, uh, you know, I got disillusioned quite a bit along the way because I was raised like most people to believe that, yeah, there may be a few bad apples, but it's the greatest system of justice and government in the world. And uh, losing this labor dispute that I, where I did really, you know, did a lot to, to uh, you know, start shaking me awake that, you know, things really aren't as they seem. And so what happened was when I had d done this tremendous amount of legal work, it's my first, you know, glimpse at the uh, legal system and I was going to the law library on a regular basis after work and I put together this tremendous, what I thought anyway, tremendous legal brief uh, to counter what had been done uh, at the union when we had this original hearing with the union, which I'm not right. a union guy, but they took my money and I, I didn't want to have my job taken from me like the way they did. And uh, the judge, we went in, it was about 30 seconds long, and the judge basically said, uh, decision is affirmed in favor of the defendant. Uh, uh, gentlemen, have a nice day. And uh, it turned out that the court was in a building owned by the defendant, the one who I was I had the dispute with. <laughs> <laughs> a of interest there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So anyone familiar with Route 112 going in uh, Long Island there in Medford, um, they, they probably know who I'm talking about. He, uh, just a big developer owns most of that, that, you know, route 112. He owns a lot of businesses and buildings there. And yeah, that's, that really started, you know, get me researching into the, the whole legal system. And, and that led me, uh, to where we are today, of course, where I started researching a lot of the Patriot stuff and seeing that like the government, a lot in the Patriot community were were just as as dis, dishonest and deceitful as the you know people pretending to be the president. So it was actually researching the the gurus, so to speak, the big names in the patriot community back in the mid nineties uh, that led me to the discovery that it's all a sham. It's all a fiction. All of it uh, from top to bottom. It's not a matter matter of whether you're a capital C citizen or whatever. I mean. All of it was a fiction, and um, 
and I started applying that knowledge in the courts and had some very, you know, startling results, very predictable results after a while. In addition to the expertise you've acquired through the years, I'm sure you know a lot about what's going on. And since you spoke, to, you mentioned the word fiction. As of today, before we started the show, I checked to see what the job approval rating for Congress was and found that it's 18%. That means that 82% of the people disapprove. Why is it then that there is a high rate of incumbency, a 90% re-election? Right from the start, please explain this disconnect. It doesn't make any sense to me, but yet there it is. Well, you, you, you look at the very nature of government itself. Why do people continue participating in their own slavery, in, in, in their own enslavement? Why do they continue paying? Why do they continue working and being productive and, and supporting a system that uh, can't even control its spending? You know, so now you're looking at, again, the, the, the bank whores are now pushing for more debt. Wow, you got it. I, I, so, so I think a lot of it has to do, and this is mentioned in, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, that, that, that mankind is more predisposed to suffer. I, I think a lot of it has to do with this. People are just, they don't like change. They're afraid of change. Uh, and I think that that's what generates a lot of it, uh, fear of the unknown, fear of the change. I mean, we can demonstrate very clearly that government should be abolished today because it's it's absolutely immoral and operates in, uh, you know, 180 degrees opposite of its only stated legitimate purpose. And people won't do it. They're too afraid. They're too damn dang afraid. And that fear, that immobilizing fear, which is, you know, a combination of, the, of course, the threats and and the you know the uh, the mind control that they've that they've you know it's so uh, astu- you know astutely used against us or so definitely you you know they they're very good at it, uh, it leads to I think people not, you know not wanting to rock the boat or wanting to look apart from uh, their neighbors and and that's why they keep voting them in if they are in fact really are voting them in at this point which you know who knows how accurate the voting uh, the votes are. In the way I see it, Mark, I think uh, there's a religion in Congress, and it's uh, called re-election. These people are there to to, to be re-elected. But I've heard some people say, look, you know, I know there's a low rating for for when it comes to to the approval. However, you know, I know there are crooks, but this is my crook. And he's supporting (laughs) our our, our city here, and that's why I keep re-electing them. But we know he's a crook. What's your take on that uh, disconnect there? Well, I think there's well, I think that there's a lot of truth to that because they always claim about how much of the money that is stolen by the federal government from, let's say, Flor- you know, from the people in Florida, and so you've got. The the guy pretending to be a representative of Florida who tries to who can campaign based on how much money, how much of that money that was stolen from them that he returned back to his district, you know, so they can there are certain things that that, that the average person can see. They could see well we had the bridge to nowhere done, or you know we've got or you, you look the 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 public teat uh, is is it's used for a reason. So if you've got an, an area like Wyoming, uh, uh, Iowa, for example, where there's so many subsidies uh, for the corn industry, when your community is only on the map and, and, and the only reason why you have a job is because uh, the, the federal gangsters in, in D.C. are providing billions of stolen funds 
to support your business, you can see where why they would have some kind of attachment to this guy, regardless of whether he is, uh, you know, a, a crook from the word go, or he's giving, you know, uh, you know, doing things like this. This guy Weiner was caught doing. Uh, you have to keep that in mind. You know, you look at places like uh, Virginia where you've got a lot of tobacco. Uh, you, you you have whole communities, or like Detroit, for example, where you, well the way it used to be, where you have entire communities that are supported by the government, uh, stealing money from other people and then funneling it into their town. And of course, Detroit. You know, t- too bad that this is happening to them because it used to be a great city. But let's talk about traffic courts. Most people have gone through a traffic ticket or, or a traffic court. You say it's not a necessary evil. You say it's just evil. Please explain. <laughs> well, it, that's like the same thing with government, where they talk about government being a necessary evil. Well, that depends on. Well, we all agree that it's evil then, and is yeah. <laughs> so. It's just a matter of uh, getting, you know, rid of the subjective whether it's necessary or not. Uh, the reason why they're not necessary is because studies lately, even if we just look at. Uh, the way the government controls the traffic on the street itself. Studies have shown that when you take the lights and the signs away, traffic accidents actually go down. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive to anybody who's hearing it for the first time, but they have actual videos and studies to prove this. Uh, so people understand that when they get out on the road, they're accepting a certain amount of risk, and when those lights and the and traffic's better too, but when they're out there on the road, they're a lot more careful. They're not necessarily on the, on the cell phone texting uh, or drinking and not paying attention. They, they know their life is at stake, and so they're a lot more careful. So that right there is, is enough to show that it's, it's, it, it, it's not a necessary evil. They're just – they're not necessary. Uh, so when you look at the overwhelming majority of traffic tickets that are given out, they're not the result of anyone harming somebody else or endangering somebody else. If they're parking there, um, you've got seatbelt violations. You've got uh, uh, things like, you know, uh, having a, a taillight out, so, you know, ridiculous things like this. And so you know they're not geared towards safety. And the overwhelming majority of traffic tickets, if not all of them, can be thrown out just on a simple fact that the the traffic cop is not accusing you of violating violating anyone's legal rights. The traffic court, on on if not a hundred percent of the tickets, it's pretty close. Has no jurisdiction at all to even hear the ticket. So if you haven't damaged any personal property, then why is it the business of government to issue a ticket then? They have no business to do that. So if you use Arizona, I know you mentioned you know, Tucson. So if you use Arizona as an example, the Constitution is very, very explicit. And the Constitution, not by my opinion, but by the bureaucrats and the politicians, is supposed to be the organic law. It's the, it's the highest law within the state. And so you look at the Arizona Constitution, it tells you in Article 2, Section 2, uh, and this is similar in, in uh, several other so-called state constitutions, and it's also from the Declaration of Independence. And there are thousands of court cases that support this. Not that you need it. But it says that the government was established to protect and maintain individual rights. Well, then if the traffic court down there in Tucson, wherever you, you know, you know, say the, one of the Tucson Justice Courts, uh, if they're part of the Arizona government, which they claim to be, they have the flags and the seal right there in the courtroom, well, then the only purpose for them is 
to protect and maintain individual rights. So their jurisdiction is limited to the protection and maintenance of individual rights. Well, if they're charging you with or give you a, the cop gives you a ticket and for not having a seatbelt on, he's not alleging that you violated anyone's legal rights. They're not protecting and maintaining any individual rights. So there's no standing to complain against you and therefore the court has no and then the court has no subject matter jurisdiction. You haven't presented a valid cause of action or case to the court. You call it uh, legal land, like Alice in Wonderland. What do you mean when you say that about the court? Well, because right off the bat, I'll be the first to admit that everything is perception. We all live in, in our own world. I don't see the world the same way as you do. I don't experience the world the same way anyone else does. We have certain amounts of overlap, and the more overlap we have, uh, the better, which is one of the reasons why I do the show and we do the book and we so that more people, because it goes, it gets back to the map is not the territory. So if you look at your perceptions of the world as a map, uh, it, it's not the territory, and but there is some overlap. There is, and, and it's just the unfortunate part is when you get into the legal industry or you're, you're engaging in politics to any degree, and I include the courts in politics, you enter what I call legal land because you're not in a world based on reality. You're, ba you're in a world that has left reality and is all based on opinion. That's why you talk about court opinions, court, you know, uh, citate, it's a court opinion. What is the opinion? It's all opinion. It's all fictions. And, uh, They are willing, and some people, unfortunately, uh, they're willing to use machine guns to get you to join their fiction or get you to join their perception of reality. That's the problem. And it's not that George Bush or Obama uh, individually are, are the problem. It's, it's, it's people that are willing to use whatever means of violence necessary to get you to act as if you believe – their perceptions of the world. You know, I was going to ask you this question later, but before I forget it, you probably have heard this, Social Security. When you and I were born, probably our parents would get us a Social Security card when we were getting ready to have a job, you know, at 15 or 16. But now, when you have a baby at the hospital, they're not allowing you to leave the hospital until you fill out the Social Security form. Well, I know a couple or somebody told me about this couple that went to the hospital. And uh, when the nurses came with the paperwork, the man, the, 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 the father, refused. And he said, I'm not signing anything. I don't want a Social Security card. And they said, well, sir, you cannot leave the hospital. And he said, if you don't let me leave, I'm going to sue you for false imprisonment or kidnap. Well, the, the hospital administrator came down and, and apologized and let him go. But this seems to be almost as you need to be a slave from the moment you're born. Have you looked into this? Well, yeah, I have. And a lot of people, you know, you start talking about, you know, people think that there's so much more free here in this part of North America as opposed to parts of China or uh, right. the, the Middle East. Well, what are you free to do? Are you free to get married? Well, no, you need a license. And if you don't send that tag in, you can go to jail. Or at least the, the guy who marries you can go to jail. And people don't understand that, yeah, they can hold you hostage And for a social security number, and you start thinking, wait a minute, there's no law. Even if there was one, I wouldn't pay attention to it anyway. But it's, it, but the average person knows there's no law that says you have to participate in social security. 
So why are they so adamant? It's one thing about the, and yet that the birth certificate also. Uh, I've I've looked into that, and it probably has to do with the fact that one, the Social Security has to do with benefits from the Social Security minute. You have to have an account to be able to get Social Security benefits and to be able to get certain government benefits. The the thing is that so many hospitals receive government funding. But isn't it before? When you were about 16 is when you requested the card because that went, that's when you were starting to pay uh, or accumulate funds for your future retirement once you retired. But something strikes me suspicious as to why they would have you as a baby, have your parents fill this out without your consent to get into this because it seems to me you're becoming collateral. And all of a sudden you're worth $2 million as collateral for those who are issuing debt. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, most of the time they don't even have to get – they don't have to coerce the parents to do it because they entice the parents into doing it because they say, well, yes, we're stealing uh, X amount of dollars a year from you from uh, from the productive work that you do. But you can get more back at the end of the, you know next year if you claim a dependent. But to do that, you have to sign them up for Social Security benefits. Right. And I have to ask you, have you ever been threatened – in contempt, in legal land by asking questions. And I say this because it's become a crime to ask questions, Mark. Oh, yeah. I have been threatened with contempt uh, many, 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 many times. And I've only been held in contempt once. And it was dropped. Not And yes, the judge turned around and tried to. He was in, in Tempe, John Orr. He made out that it had to do – he said it was because of my professionalism for the whole remainder of the trial, which was ridiculous because I was hardly <laughs> professional back then. Um, but it had to do with the fact that I pointed out that when a judge – at least this is the way it used to be. If a judge holds you in contempt and says, that's $100, fine, he's not – he doesn't have discretion to do that. He has to – he can hold you in contempt, but he, he, it's not until after the proceeding that he can actually impose a dollar amount on you. Because the, the thing is, he's not supposed to be imposing the fine in the heat of the moment. So that's what it had to do. But what happened was I had called the proceedings a joke. And the judge didn't hear it, but the prosecutor did. And so the prosecutor, like a little baby, started crying, Your Honor, Mark said these proceedings were a joke. <laughs> uh, so John says to me, is that true? Did you say these proceedings were a joke? I said, well, yeah, of course they are. This is ridiculous. And he says, that's it. You're in contempt. That's $100. And I said, contempt? Contempt is bringing down the dignity of the court. I can't do that any more than you've already done. I said, I, so he wound up dropping it later, but I, I made it a point. Back then, I used to want to get a pound of flesh from the cops, and so I would do my best. Uh, I would do my best to take whatever dignity the, the the witness may have had, and I want to embarrass that cop. And as I was saying, it, it seems that society, Mark, is programmed to not ask questions. Just go to, oh. go to work, shop, pay your taxes, and don't ask questions. All of a sudden, if we ask questions, we are called agitators, subversive, or worst, terrorists. Is it because they don't have the answers, or they don't want us to know the answers? Well, I think it's a combination of the both. I, I believe that... Uh, 
some of them, and at least the higher up you go on the on the uh, the chain of command, I, I think they really they start to realize that there isn't anything there. I have an example like here from the franchise tax board I was dealing with yesterday, uh, where we wanted the money back. It was not a it was not a a, a return or claim for a refund. We it was a demand for a return of the stolen money. And what they do is now we make an evidentiary challenge. It's always an evidentiary challenge, and we're just asking questions. And I believe that they know there's nothing there. So what they do is they deflect attention. They don't want you and I questioning this. And that's why what they'll come out with, and they'll do something like this. Again, I just got this yesterday, and I spoke to the agent, and I'll, and I'll talk about that. It states that we denied your claim for the following reasons. It does not state a valid reason why the assessment was incorrect. It is based on a frivolous argument. So I called the and this is all to, to, to distract you. And they give you a, a code number and you can go to it. So I call and, and I wrote the paperwork. I mean, I, I know what was in it. And all we did was, it was make an evidentiary challenge. That, that, that was it. And so I asked her, can you identify this alleged frivolous argument for me? <laughs> and she she comes back with, well, Mark, it says right there we have revenue and taxation code section 19. You can look it up for you. No, 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 no. I'm not letting you off the hook like that. You put through the United States mail. I got your blue signature here. You put through the United States mail. I made a frivolous argument. I want you to just take a moment and identify it for me. You identify it for me. Don't ask me to do that. You show me. I don't want to. You know, I said, I'm, I said I, with all due respect, I'm not going to let you off the hook on this. Okay, you either identify the alleged frivolous argument or you withdraw this because it did go through the mail. Am I making myself clear? Yeah. So I said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to read my, my paperwork before you respond. I'll give you that. So I'm waiting for that. But they don't want the questions. I have had security stand right behind. I've had sheriff's deputies here in Phoenix stand right behind me because the judge is flipping out like a child because I did nothing more. Then ask, is there evidence of a complaining party? Think about that. Absolutely. And most uh, traffic tickets, who's the one complaining? Who, who it says, the, yeah, well, it says the state. Right. right. Exactly. So what I do is I'm asking, so when the prosecutor stands there, this lawyer is standing there saying, uh, this is uh, William Burke. It's a prosecutor here in, in the Valley. William Burke for the state, Your Honor. Hey, I'm going to ask a question. Is there evidence to prove that? It, it's an unorthodox question. It used to be a lot more back because I was the only one asking it. But now, thank goodness, there have been thousands of people who have been asking the same question with really good results. Now, it may may some people may look at it like, well, it's really not that good a result when the court, when the judge starts screaming at you, Mark, and now you've got two or three armed deputies standing right behind you, and he's threatening you with contempt if you ask that question again. I disagree. I think I've stumbled on again. I had, I, and you have to realize, whoa, holy crap! You think I said something like I just raped the, the judge's mother? Why is he responding like that? I ask for evidence. And what people need to understand, what they should understand, if they have any honest investigation into, into, into uh, the, the reality of that in the society in which we live in, when you walk into court, your opinions are supposed to be left at the door. The court is there, is supposed to be there anyway, to, for an examination of the facts. So 
if somebody comes in claiming to represent the state, I ask for evidence. And then when the judge turns around and starts screaming and gets armed deputies stand behind me, yeah, I think they're going out of their way and a little over the top to protect a little, a little known secret. There is no state, and they know it. They know they can't produce one shred of empirical, verifiable evidence that the state of Arizona has any existence whatsoever. Zero. And that's why someone like, uh, what was his name, Stitch, flips out, and he's a judge here in Phoenix, or Mike Jones, who's here, uh, a Superior Court judge also. That's why they're flipping out and screaming. Because if I was just raised, why not have the prosecutor answer the question? How many times do you want, to, do you ask a government official to cite a law and they just uh, give you attitude or they'll get back to you and they never do or they just <laughs> simply ignore you. Does that ever happen to you? Well, it's funny you ask that because I generally don't quote the law when I speak to them, especially with the IRS and a tax agent. I I did it for the first time yesterday and then I did it again this morning. So just, just yesterday... <laughs> We called and is supposed to be part of the reconstru the uh, the uh, 1998 act to restructure the IRS, and part of that was section 3705 was that the IRS is supposed to assign an individual Internal Revenue employee to handle your problem until it's resolved. So I read this to the agent. She doesn't believe me. She says, let me put you on hold. She comes back. She's now getting progressively more upset with me. She says, you're absolutely right. That is what the section says. That's what the law says. But our policy, uh, based on the fact that we're so busy, we can't do that. So I said, oh, well, let me get it straight. Your policy conflicts with the law. Now she's really upset with me. So yes, you're itching, I, you're itching for you're itching for a <laughs> Well, they they I and, and I want some personal attention anyway, whether they call it an order or not. As, as long as I can get some personal attention, and so you know we start talking about this a little bit more. She's getting really upset with me, and and she she refers to my client as a taxpayer. Well, I don't let that stand. I said, well, that's part of the evidentiary problem we're having, ma'am. There has been no evidence. To date, that my, you know, showing that my client is a taxpayer, and then she—that's all she could take. Now she's, she's, she's screaming, "That's it! I've had enough!" Bang! She hangs up on us. That's and that's what they do. It's it's the reason why on the back of the book I have the three monkeys. You know, see no evil, hear no evil, and it, it has to do with they they're not going to listen to the truth. They're not going to they're not going to see the truth, and they're not going to speak the truth. They are not going to. So that's what they do. They just hang up on you. So here you've got a point where their own law says one thing, and they do the complete opposite, and that's one of the main reasons why. I do things the way I do, though. I get your opinion or the agent's opinion first, and then I base everything off of that. So I ask them, like if I'm dealing with taxes, one, I want to know, are you one with authority to throw this assessment out? Oh, you great. If not, get me to the guy who can because I'm wasting my time with you. Well, I don't say that to them, but I, I need to get to the agent who can. Once I have an agent who, who admits that they have the authority to withdraw the assessment or abate it, then I ask them what the grounds are and if a lack of evidence is grounds to vacate an assessment, they will always tell me yes. Now I've got them. I don't have to cite the law. I've got their own opinion. You know, Is it, I always have this question in my mind, is it the ineptitude of some government officials 
or did you just pretend to be stupid sometimes? A few years ago, I used to own a vending company. And when I uh, bought the company, all of a sudden I get a letter from the the local tax authority saying you need a, 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 a transaction tax privilege. It's not a license, but it's like, a, how, how would you call it? You know what I mean? Anyway, I said to them, wait a minute, this is a vending company. There are vending machines this place in plenty of businesses out there. How in the world are you going to want me to collect taxes on that? You need to, to have a cafeteria or a restaurant where people go there to consume before you can collect taxes. Well, silence. And they said, oh, I guess you're right, sir. Ignore our phone call. Explain that. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. As a matter of fact, the person I sold the business to started paying taxes, and I had to tell him, you don't have to. Why is this happening? Well, I think there's a combination of reasons. I think one of the biggest ones now is that these people, because of the spending and because of the housing crash, they are looking at their pensions being destroyed. And uh, and you've got like California, so many of these municipalities are going bankrupt. They need the bailouts. You know, you look at what's happening in Greece, Ireland, Spain, Portugal. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they're getting so aggressive. I mean, even in California, you had, uh, I think it was last year, or maybe a little more than a year ago, where Schwarzenegger cut the pay. So I think that, that you know, the cut state pay, and so I think that made them more aggressive. They need to collect as much money as possible because they're trying to protect their livelihood and they're trying to protect their pensions. Even if they do it in a fraudulent manner? In- you have to... Yeah, but you have to convince them it's fraudulent. Right. Exactly. The, the, the burden of, of the proof <laughs> lies on you, and you have to prove it to the government that they're wrong. And to most people, that's a very intimidating thing to do, Mark. I agree. I agree. I absolutely agree. And that's why I encourage people to do things you know, like a child, I, you know, people say, well, oh, well, I want to, I want to learn your method. I, you already know my method. You're just not doing it. My method is just being a child and just asking questions. It's the scientific method. Why, why, why? You know, they'll say, I, I'll ask them, what, what facts do you rely on that my client is within the state or that, or what facts do you rely on that the constitution applies to my client? And they say, well, it's an operation of law. Why? Explain how that works to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I even had to explain to an attorney, you'd think I wouldn't have to do this. She said, well, it's an operation of law. And I have to say, do you understand that that sentence has no content in it? It tells me absolutely nothing. <laughs> You're telling that to an attorney? Well, yeah, it was to a franchise tax board attorney. And and I think if people, in, in, they're, one, they're, they're in, tremendously intimidated by the system because uh, of the, how archaic or, you know, or how maze-like, well, it, it's called a code. Uh, because you have to decipher it. And, and the way I do it, I don't get into all that. What, what I do is I just take what they are saying and I f- feed it back to them in the form of a question. So regardless of what the content is that they're shoving down my throat, I can just turn it into a question and bring it right. So I call it in the book Zen and the Art of Litigation. I don't want to disagree with the bureaucrat because if I disagree with him, he's, well, he's not going to take my word for it. So if he's going to make some kind of statement, and I know it's not true, because, well, like right here, let's use this as an example. I have this, like I just read, they say, uh, I, it does not state a valid reason why the assessment is incorrect. It's based on a frivolous argument. 
I don't necessarily want to put, take a burden of proof upon myself to prove that this is fraud. I would rather just get on the phone and start asking questions and have them hang themselves. So what I do, and it's a process that you want to learn, not just repeating what I say. I present a certain model where you're just asking questions. So for example, it says it's based on a frivolous argument. Now, we already know what she's responding to because you know we we wrote it or we can go back and we can reference that we know there's no frivolous argument we know this is fraud we know it's mail fraud but i have to i have to get them to make some kind of admissions to get so that they can agree to that because if i just say it's fraud they're not going to believe me any more than if i say you're engaged in fraud you're going to say well well prove it okay all I do is then ask, you said it's based on a frivolous argument. Great. I'm not going to take a position on that. Can you identify it for me? That is really the, the extent of the investigation that I have to make in this situation. Why and do I – I'm sorry? Most of the time when you ask that question, what do you get? Well, what she did to me yesterday, again, they, she, she said, well, you can just look at the code or you can go to our website. They try to divert your attention so that you'll go – you know, maybe you will, you know, or you'll say, well, I've read on the website and I, you know, it diverts your attention, which is what politics does. All of politics is diversion. It's divert your attention away from the underlying violence. And so I decided to be a nice guy because I, I want to give them every opportunity to correct this. And I don't want to come off as a combative guy because I'm really not. Uh, you try to put something over on me. Well, yeah, I have an issue with that. But here it doesn't help my client any because I'm not working on behalf of myself. Uh, this is uh, before the Franchise Tax Board, and I'm the power of attorney, and so I'm working on behalf of somebody else, and we need to get this resolved as quick as possible. And so it doesn't do me, you, or anyone else any good to start arguing with the agent or contradicting the agent. I know there's a difference between argument and contradiction, and that's what they engage in. I have very rarely engaged in an argument with a revenue agent because they don't argue. They contradict. <laughs> <laughs> I know. it's, it's like. It's the old line that I, I quote from the, the Mighty Python argument clinic. No, 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 no. They, an argument is an intellectual process. Uh, all you're doing is, is, is contradicting. So, uh, and no, nobody's ever, uh, and none of these tax agents have ever caught me on quoting that movie uh, or that TV show, rather. Uh, but the extent of my investigation or, or to show or exposing that this is fraud doesn't have to go beyond asking them to identify it. It's, no, it, it's like with the IRS. Uh, one of the easiest ways to show if you want to show a due process violation or show that they are completely uh, operating in bad faith is to ask one simple question. Is the opinion or is your opinion that I'm a taxpayer irrefutable? Absolutely. And I just I just thought of the, the name uh, Joe Bannister. You probably know the name, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Joe Bannister. And I forgot the, the lady's name also. And I believe she's been... Uh, imprisoned now sherry jackson sherry is she in prison now i believe she's still in prison what happened there well we only have uh two hours um there's a lot of things that happened there and i know she tried some of the things that i recommend uh but there you you will you have to look at the process that led up to the indictment you, you, you we it's it's difficult to sit there and 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 it, it, you, you you what what got you to that point and I think one of the fundamental errors, and I know Joe prevailed, and I know Lloyd Long, and I'm not saying people can't prevail. I just look at it, I want a more effective way of doing it. 
Because we know that while Lloyd Long and Joe Bannister have prevailed, Larkin Rose did not. Larkin's a good friend of mine. Uh, it, it almost makes me want to cry when I think of, of someone, a good man like that, that went to prison uh, for not mailing a piece of paper. Uh, but if you look at the administrative process that they went through, uh, and, and Larkin falls into this also, uh, but he had a different reason for doing it. And I applaud him for that. Anyway, uh, they were challenging the uh, the legality the legality of what the IRS is doing. They were looking at the definitions or and the statutory construction or interpretation. I don't get into interpretation at all. I don't care what the law says because that is putting the cart before the horse. Until you have evidence and witnesses to verify that the code applies to you. There's no need to get into interpretation at all. I mean, if the French authorities were coming after you, <laughs> would you argue interpretation or application? You want to you point out and want evidence for application. I'm not French. I've never been to France. How does your law apply to me? So I do the same thing here. So that's why I asked this, this, this franchise tax board attorney I asked her, what evidence do you rely on that the Constitution applies to my client? And she said, well, it's an operation of law. Well, I had to keep from laughing because it, – and, and I want everyone listening to examine that, that statement. It's an operation of law. There's no content to that. It means nothing. It has absolutely – we give it meaning based on our perceptions, our expectation, or our, our conditioning up to this point. But we don't question it most of the time. I questioned it. Now, when someone says to me it's an operation of law, you better be prepared to uh, tell me what that means. And especially, you know, and it's tough not to get angry because they're accusing me of semantics. <laughs> right. And yet they're saying, well, it's an operation of law. So what the agent wanted, the lawyer said to me, she said, I'm having a very difficult time communicating with you, Mark. And I, I said, well, the reason is I'm asking you for facts, and you're responding with law. I said, do you understand we can't communicate that way? If you want to communicate with me, you have to be responsive. So let me ask you again. What facts do you rely on that the Constitution is applicable to my client? She couldn't tell me. So in that case... Why is it – it's not even necessary to talk about what the Constitution actually physically says. It doesn't matter what the scribbles are supposed to say. You can't prove it's applicable, and the same thing applies to their sacred writ, the law. Unless you can show the facts showing a, a factual connection between me and the law, whatever it happens to be, because we have to determine that first before you can connect me to it, then it doesn't matter what it says. It doesn't matter if it says Mark Stevens shall pay. Show where it applies. Any idiot can scribble words on a piece of paper. Show me it applies. Well, that's why I'm asking you. That's why I mentioned uh, Joe Bannister and Sherry Jackson, because my next question says, is there really a separation? of power in the United States? Or do you see commingling or, or an incestual relationship between the judicial, the executive, and the legislative branches? Well, I think it all boils down to, if you take the label away, 
you see where it's irrelevant because it's all based on uh, fundamentally on violence. None of the three branches require – none of these individual men and women ever ask you for your permission or your consent. And that to me is the main issue. If you, you can split hairs and say, yes, half of Congress, which is the legislative branch, are attorneys, which are part of the judicial branch. The same thing with the President of the United States. Under the separation of powers doctrine, an, uh, an attorney cannot be a member of the executive branch. But somebody please explain the attorney general to me then. Uh, but it's, So that's the way I look at it, and I think it's important to look at what you can actually prove because that's, and, and that's what's going to be ultimately more effective for you anyway. But to get back to the what, – what, maybe I wasn't clear enough in my, you know, about Joe Bannister and, and what they did or Sherry Jackson who lost on, uh, in, at trial. They were focusing on interpretation of the law as opposed to the application, and so – I actually have agents admitting they're not qualified to say my client is a taxpayer. That is a heck of a lot more effective than going based on an interpretation of the law because now you're giving them the opportunity to say, well, Mark, um, the courts have ruled that the uh, the argument you're not a taxpayer within meaning of statute is frivolous. And they're absolutely correct. And that's what they try to do with me. And I said, well, I didn't say that. What I said is I asked you if there was any evidence that my client's a taxpayer. You said you weren't qualified to answer that question. So what my position is, based on speaking to you, there's no evidence my client's a taxpayer. That's not the same thing as saying you're not a taxpayer within meaning of statute. One is factual and evidentiary-based, which is completely different than one that is legal-based. And you can't settle issues of fact by pointing to a court opinion. It doesn't work that way. Res judicata and stare decisis are two completely different animals. They're not the same thing. They keep mixing the two as if they were, and that's where they get you. And now they've been responsive, whereas with the facts, they haven't been other than to admit they don't have them. And you mentioned something very interesting. You said that uh, Congress is composed of about, about 50% uh, lawyers. If 6% of the population is comprised of lawyers, shouldn't our Congress and Senate somewhat mirror our population if they're indeed representing us? Then why is it that about 44% of the Senate and Congress is comprised of lawyers? And with the presidents, even worse, 26 out of 44 presidents we're lawyers. Why don't we see more small business owners, doctors, or simply non-politicians? <laughs> well, that, well, because the deck is stacked. And and the important thing, I think, in what you're asking me to point out is because, you know, if they do represent, they actually don't represent. There is no United States. There is no Congress. There is no there are no citizens. Uh, it's all they're all fictions. They do not represent you, you know, because one and I've done this. I mean, I've called and I've spoken to bureaucrats. They won't come on my show, but we're used to that. I spoke to and one in particular who's in my new book an attorney with the uh, California Attorney General's office. And I asked a point blank, sir, is there any evidence of a principal-agent relationship between the Attorney General and the people that voted for him? And he said, no, of course not. There's no, 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 of course not. So there's no principal-agent relationship. No. So he doesn't actually represent the people. Ah, see, that's how you expose these things. No congressman, whether he's a lawyer or not, oh, Ron Paul's a doctor, uh, actually, actually somebody with a legitimate, necessary, you know, and valuable 
uh, skill, unlike a lawyer. Uh, well, some lawyers have valuable skills. Some, some, some are very good at cross-examination. Anyway, but uh, that's what I think the, the focus should be on. Instead of, you know, it, it, it's where is the evidence? And I have a video I did. It's only about a minute long about the birth of crap, you know, saying, well, Obama's a fake. But they're all, they're all fakes. They're, if you ask for evidence of a principal-agent relationship, they cannot give you a thing. Nothing. Because even if you throw up like Lysander Spooner did so eloquently in, in no trees in the Constitution, no authority, you can't use voting as, uh, as consent or that someone's representing. You have to have evidence of a master – of a principal-agent relationship. What we have now is sheep-farmer relationship, which is uh, – that, and that's something you could prove. You could prove a master-servant relationship very easily because you're forced to pay them. Uh, but there is no, there is no principal-agent relationship. There is no valid power of attorney that they have to act on your behalf or anybody else's behalf. And there's certainly no power of attorney in place that allows them or anyone else to get into debt on my behalf. And not to get it political because I know you are apolitical just like I am too now but you mentioned Congressman Paul every time you see him on on TV and there's there's a debate he always shows up at the bottom however when you see the public polls he always shows up at the top right it seems that they're manipulating the stats here Well, yeah, but they've been manipulating the stats for years, and it depends on – you don't know what the – let's just say we have no evidence whatsoever they're skewing the numbers. What we do have evidence of, if you research it, the questions that are asked of the people taking the poll. And so depending on how you frame the questions is going to dictate the results, obviously. So you have to take that into consideration. You, you have – Ron Paul is a statist. He is not a voluntarist. He's not an anarchist. He's not an agorist. He is not for a complete. He is not for a free market. He is for taxation. He is a government agent. You, we can't get. Yes, he's got a valuable skill as a doctor, but he is pretending to be a congressman. We know he's read uh, Spooner's works. He know, he understands. He he turns the other way. Uh, uh, okay, uh, but he. I don't want to come off as being too harsh against Ron Paul because he's, he I, I do respect him as a doctor. I don't respect him as a congressman. And I think the problem that the establishment has with him is that a lot of what he says is spot on. There should be no Federal Reserve. There should be no IRS. But there shouldn't be any taxes either. And he, what he has done is he has energized people to get out and actually be vocal about two of the uh, of the biggest you know well one the, the the single largest criminal organization in the world and that is the federal reserve and the federal reserve system uh so i applaud him for that uh, but we can't lose sight of the fact that he is pretending to be a congressman just like all the other ones he just has a lot you know a lot he's got a lot more to say that I agree with than any other so-called congressman pretending. Uh, I don't believe the Fed needs to be audited. I just need the Fed needs to be put out of business. Well, I was going to say that we have to take our one and only intermission, and I was going to say that I don't applaud Congressman Paul when he says that we need to, to uh, audit the Fed. We don't need to audit the Fed. We need to abolish the Fed. It's a criminal institution that has been put in place there you know, without our consent. 
And uh, we can talk more about the Fed. This is such a, a big topic, and I would like to delve more into it with you. But Mark, tell the listeners around the world how to get in touch with your work, buy this book, and listen to you. The book is Adventures in Legal Land. It's available on my website, markstevens.net, M-E-R-C, Stevens with a V. Uh, I'm... I also have, you can order consultation off of that. I've done it most of today. I was on the phone with the IRS most of the day today and yesterday. Uh, and we have motion templates available. And I have a cross-reference on the website. So if you're in Maine, you can cross everything over. And uh, it's also available now as an ebook, which uh, uh, I'm very happy about finally to get the all the formats <laughs> available. So uh, And that's only $7, and you can get that off the website. A lot of information. It's uh, almost 300 pages long, and I'm enjoying every page. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Mark Stevens, and we have so much more to discuss. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member... Have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. What's going on? You got a taste for the money. You got a taste for the money.
This is Freeman, and you're listening to Veritas. <laughs> 